0: Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this time for us to to look at the gospel and to consider you the God of the gospel. We pray that your spirit would just open up our minds, open up our eyes to see that our greatest need in life is really to have a personal, genuine, biblical, ever-growing knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so we pray that, Your spirit, as we look at your word, would pour the love of Christ into our hearts and that you would compel us, constrain us to do things that are impossible for us by ourselves, but are very possible in you. We pray this in Christ's name. All God's people said, amen. All right. So if you guys read any of your emails or whatnot, uh, by the way. Make sure you put your name on the roster with the email address so that we can make sure you're getting our emails. Raise your hand if you're not getting the class emails yet. Okay, so make sure your name with the email address gets put on the roster so that you can get our emails. So here's the book giveaway without looking at the track that you have in your hands. Who can tell me the five questions of life's most important questions? Is there anybody that knows the five questions of life's most important questions without looking at the track? And right, I might be giving myself a book. All right. Who can give me the first question without looking at the track of life's most important questions? The very first question. Who had it? Closeman, no cigar. Anybody know the first question? Yes, Ruth. Who is God? Come on down here, Ruth Frash. She is getting a free copy of Around the Wicket Gate by C.H. Spurgeon. Unfortunately, I couldn't get him to sign it. Uh, but you can see him in glory when you go to meet him. That is a great book. We're giving it away because we'd love for you guys to read Around the Wicket Gate. You will be reading it this next week. Um, we have a couple free copies of the first four chapters in the back. Um, let's So we're talking about teaming up for evangelism. You're not alone. We team up with God. He's the primary evangelist. He's put us into the body of Christ. And so we have different gifts. So we're working together. Not all of us are called to do the exact same thing. You shouldn't feel intimidated or guilty because you're not doing what I'm doing as a pastor. You've got your gifts. We all have gifts. We use those as puzzle pieces that come together for the glory of Christ. You guys will see your class schedule in the handout that you have uh, before you. And so today we're talking about the God of the gospel. Next week we'll be talking about the good news of the gospel. Just make note that we are having February 22nd, an evangelism event. Um, We haven't decided, at least I don't know, Jaime, if we've decided what that event's going to be yet. Uh, But it will be a meeting that we gather together to go out, do some evangelism. We're not going to throw you out alone. We're going to put you on a team or with a group. And um, you'll be able to go out and do some evangelism, put this class into practice. We'll team you up with experienced evangelists, many of whom are in this room right now. Um, And then on the 23rd, we're going to have a good news panel. So for our class that day, we'll actually be interviewing some more experienced evangelists, but we'll also be evangel- or, uh, interviewing some of you uh, on how you uh, l- what you learned from this class and how you enjoyed the February 22nd event. So if you'd like to be part of that panel, let me know. So this morning, we're going to be talking about the God of the gospel. We did kind of an overview last week. It's very important for us as we talk about the gospel as we talk about good news that we talk about the source of this good news and that is God himself. Uh, It can be very easy for us to kind of skip over this idea and we just want to get out and share the good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross for sinners with people. And if we, but if we don't examine who this God is, that we're speaking about, and particularly, we need to know this God and to be experiencing Him for ourselves, in order to have one the right content, but two the right motivation, as we go talk to people about God. I was listening to a, a message last couple weeks uh, where the preacher had this to say: Our greatest need. And this is Bob Coughlin, by the way. Our greatest need in life is a personal, genuine, biblically accurate, ever-growing knowledge of Jesus Christ. Is that true? Is that our biggest need? Is that our biggest need in life? Is that our biggest need in our battle against sin? Is that our biggest need when it comes to evangelism? is to have a personal, genuine, biblically accurate, ever-growing knowledge of Jesus Christ. I want to propose to you in this class that that is absolutely true. Uh, It it needs to be personal. A relationship with God, there's, there's a difference between standing in front of a Cinnabon store and having a Cinnabon in you, right? Big difference. I can appreciate the smell. I can appreciate the business of Cinnabon and all that goes into making a Cinnabon. But unless you have it in you, you really are not experiencing it. And there are people who know God. They know facts about God. They have an admiration for God and Jesus Christ. But is Jesus Christ in them? And even as Christians, we can sometimes get our pipes clogged up and we start to have a mist, as John Calvin says, a mist comes over our eyes and we start to lose this affection for the excellency of Christ. And so we want to grow in this personal, genuine, that we're not just using Jesus to get to something. Jesus is the something. Jesus doesn't get us to something better. He is what is best. And so it's personal, it's genuine, it's biblically accurate that the Jesus that we're studying is not the the Jesus that Paul speaks of in Second Corinthians 11, they preach another Jesus. But are we really coming to face to face with the Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus of the shack or the Jesus of Mormonism, the Jesus of legality, but the Jesus of scripture. And that it's ever growing that we're not growing bored of our worship of Jesus but that we're growing in our experience of Christ. And that's something that we do have to cry out for on a daily basis. You guys recall that Hebrews 313 says that we need to exhort one another daily. Why? Lest you grow hardened from what? The deceitfulness, what kind of deceitfulness? Of sin. Wait a second, you mean Christians can get hardened? By deceitfulness of sin, answer, yes. Solution, exhorting one another daily so that we're constantly growing and exalting and experiencing the excellencies of Christ. And so that's what we're talking about um, this morning. We're going to spend some time looking at a few texts that we asked you to read this week. And then we're going to look at a prayer that we asked you to pray this week. Then we're going to take just a real quick gander at a couple parts of the tracks that are on the back table. And then we're going to uh, share with you a little bit of a testimony of somebody who called upon Christ by faith this week. All right. So let's go ahead and look at John 17. First of all, turn to John 17. And let's talk about the God of the gospel. The God of the gospel is triune. There's a father, there's a son, and there's the Holy Spirit. And we see part of this, this relationship, this triune relationship highlighted, particularly between the father and the son in this prayer that we call the, the high priestly prayer. Look with me at John 17, verse three, where Jesus is talking to his father letting us hear these whispers behind the door. This is very parental talk, so to speak, that we as children have a tough time understanding, but we listen in and we're hearing Jesus talk to his father. And he says this in verse three, and this is eternal life. When We go out and we share the gospel. We want people to come to eternal life. So Jesus is going to tell, he's actually speaking to his father with his disciples overhearing what is eternal life? This is it that they may know you. Now, here's what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying that they may know facts about you, that they might be able to recite the scripture passages about you, that they know chapter and verse, that they admire things about you. No, it's that they know you by experience Jonathan Edwards spent a lot of time in his life preaching trying to help Christians people that were coming to the church I say Christians in quotations to help them see the difference between a head knowledge of Christ and a heart knowledge experience of Christ eternal life is not just knowing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for sins was raised from the dead and is seated at the right hand of the father you can recite that like the devil But this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. There is only one true God. But notice what Jesus says. He parallels the next phrase. This is not what we would call a subjunctive clause. This isn't something that's less than knowing God the Father. This is equal to knowing God the Father, that they may know you and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, what's eternal life to know God, the father and God, the son, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. By the way, Jesus is going to send the spirit. Jesus is either absolutely crazy to put himself on total equality with God, the father, or this is true. That to have eternal life is to know God the Father and equally to know God the Son, not just by knowledge of facts, but by experience. Taste and see that the Lord is good. It's not just that you can diagnose, that you can tell us everything about honey. You could be a scientist and tell us the ins and outs of honey. But somebody who has eternal life tastes the honey For themselves and by the way nobody goes to heaven because mom tasted the honey or grandma tasted the honey or the pastor tasted the honey you get eternal life because you taste the honey for yourself and so this is part of what this is the God of the gospel to come to understand the good news we need to know God by experience Look at the end of this chapter. Look at this is befuddling when you really think about it. Look at verse 24 down to 26. Jesus says, Father, I desire that they whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. Notice we're going to see glory spoken up here in a moment in Exodus 33 and 34. But Jesus is talking about his glory here, which you have given me for you loved me. How long has the father loved the son? Before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, uh, the world has not known you. Is he saying that the world didn't know any facts about Jesus Christ? No, they knew lots of facts about Jesus Christ. But they have not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. So he's talking now about his disciples. They've known you by experience and they've known me. Verse 26, and I have declared, proclaimed. We're going to pick this up when we look at Moses in a second. I've declared to them your name. I've declared to them the gospel, the God of the gospel, and will declare it that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So let me ask you a couple of questions. How much does the father love the son? A whole lot. How long did the father love the son from before the foundation of the world? Jesus in verse 26 is praying. I pray that the love with which you have loved me. That same kind of love. Would be. In them. You love me. I want that love to be in them. And that I would be in them. This is the God of the gospel getting all mixed up with the gospel. The father loves the son. The son loves the father. And the son is praying that his disciples would experience that same quality and nature of love. That's part of what this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible right now. I say right now because tomorrow it could change. But John fifteen nine, Jesus says, as the father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. Think about that. As the father has loved me, he's loved me forever. He's loved me infinitely. There's no measure. It can't be measured. The father's love for the son is just out of this world. As the father's loved me, I have loved you. If the love from the father to the son can never change, the love of the son to us can never change. Jesus says, stay right there. Abide there. Stay within your knowledge, experience of this God, the God that you're experiencing between father, son, spirit. So that's that's the God of the gospel. Let's go back to uh, Exodus. Now we asked you to read Exodus. Thirty four, but I'm going to pick it up in Exodus thirty three to give us some of the, the context here. If we can grow in our ever grow in our taste and knowledge of of god jesus the holy spirit that's what's going to impact our evangelism if we run to preaching the good news first and we forget the source of the good news it ends up with guilt and judgmentalism guilt and judgmentalism when i run straight to preaching the gospel try to tell other people that they need to repent believe in jesus But I'm not on a regular basis drinking in that grace for myself. What happens is I get guilty when I don't preach the gospel and I get filled with pride when I do preach the gospel and I start judging other people. But when I'm drinking deeply and tasting of the honey for myself, that humbles me. And now I'm motivated out of grace. And then I'm trying to lure other people by grace to do the same thing. Is this making sense? Let's look at what... um, What happens with Moses here? Remember the Lord, you know, Moses and and the Lord, they have this great relationship, right? Look at 3311. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. That's just befuddling. That Moses is very unique at this point in redemptive history. He's able to speak face to face in some sense. Even though in verse 20, it says you cannot see my face. No man shall see me and live. That's not a contradiction. That's just showing that there is a sense in which Moses did speak to him face to face. But there's a sense in which he did not see his full unveiled glory. But look at verse 18. Moses says, please show me your glory. He's had a taste, but he wants more. So the Lord says in verse 19, then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim I will declare God's the evangelist. I'm going to declare some good news to you. Just like Jesus proclaimed the name of Yahweh when he was on the earth. I'm going to proclaim the name of Yahweh before you. You can't see my face, but I'm going to I'm going to hide you in this rock and I'm going to proclaim. Go cut out two stones. Meet me in the morning. Do. Uh, Moses does that. He gets up for his quiet time after cutting out stones. That probably took a while. Right? Verse 5. Now the Lord descended, of the next chapter, 34 5. Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So the Lord's going to preach the gospel now. Here's who I am. And what does he say? How does he start? The Lord passed before and proclaimed. The Lord, that is Yahweh, the Lord God. So he, he starts off with kind of his name proper. Yahweh, the existent one. God, the only true God. And then part of his name is these attributes. And what are the first attributes that flow right out of God's name? In fact, they're so much a part of God, they're listed as part of God's proclamation of his own name. Merciful. Gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth. Those are the first five descriptors of God's name. He wants Moses to know that he is merciful. he's merciful. He doesn't tend to give people the ill they deserve. He's gracious. He, he overabundantly gives people what they don't deserve. He's long suffering that his nature is to bear long with people in their sins and then uh, abounding. So not just a little bit abounding in goodness and truth. And then he begins to flesh it out some more. This is God declaring this to Moses, keeping mercy for thousands. The idea here is probably thousands of generations. And when you cross check this with. Exodus twenty. In Exodus twenty, God adds, with thousands of generations who love me, forgiving iniquity, so so he's fleshing out more of his name, merciful, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, piling up all the ways in which we violate God. Iniquity, crookedness, transgression, crossing boundaries that shouldn't be crossed. Sin. It's not barely missing the mark. It's shooting in the wrong direction. He forgives that kind of stuff. That's the whole way that God kicks this off. And these are meant, this is his name. So these are meant to be controlling thoughts that guide us throughout the rest of our Bible reading. So as you're reading your Bible, as we're looking into the face of God and are and, and experiencing Jesus Christ, what Yahweh is telling Moses is what, who I am and what you should expect from me is mercy, grace, long-suffering, goodness, truth, that kind of stuff. That's just, that's just who I am. The Father loves the Son. As the Father loves the Son, so I have loved you. Stay there. Abide there. And then he goes on. And it's not until the middle of verse 7 that he says, By no means clearing the guilty. I am all of these things, but just because I'm merciful and gracious and kind of unsuffering doesn't mean that I let sin go on forever and just have everybody come into heaven at the end of history. No, I'm long suffering, but I do deal with sin. I don't sweep it under the carpet, but I and in fact, I visit the iniquity of fathers upon the children, the children's children of the third and fourth generation i.e. to those who hate me and don't repent, their sinful choices have an impact upon their children, chief of which is the is the fathers who move away from Yahweh and choose not to worship him and go off into Baal worship and Molech worship. Guess what happens after a few generations? Now you have whole people groups who don't even know God anymore, right? You have... Uh, Adam and Eve, several generations know him and then there's people that just forget who he is. Noah gets off the ark, there's one true religion, everybody knows God, but then Ham and and others move away and um and then a few generations go by and the, one of the consequences is is they don't even worship Yahweh anymore. And so the sins of the fathers are visited upon the children, chief of which because now they don't know God by knowledge or experience, and they reap the consequences of that. So Moses, what does he do? Verse 8 made haste, bowed his head towards the earth, and worshiped. And then, so he worships, then notice what he says, verse 9 If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, so he's already putting this into practice. You say you're gracious. If I've found grace in your sight, O Lord, I pray, go among us even though we are a stiff necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your inheritance. So right away Moses puts us into practice. God declares the gospel. Moses worships, he believes the gospel, and then he prays the gospel right back to Yahweh. If you really are this way, come along with us even though we're a stiff necked people. These, this is a controlling thought that should guide all of our Bible reading, and it should guide our experience of God himself. When you're reading the Bible and you see God getting, p- giving people long periods of time, how many years did, went by between Abraham and Joshua before God finally said enough and started sinning in Israel to, to start taking judgment out upon the Canaanites? 400 years that's pretty long suffering you know when people sin against me you know how much time they get maybe a couple minutes right and then I, I'm, I'm calling for fire down upon somebody's head god waited for 400 years noah preaches what 100 120 years before the flood came the flood doesn't come for about 1600 years or so after creation god is long suffering and so this should impact the way we read our Bibles and even the way we, we evangelize. You know, when, you, when you're reading through your Bible and you see somebody, all of a sudden God's judgment breaks out and somebody gets whacked. Let's, let's take Nadab and Abihu, for instance. A controlling thought should be God's long-suffering, gracious, and merciful. What was going on that these guys got hammered? How long had they been stiff Necked and hard hearted before God finally broke out in wrath against Nadab and Abihu. It's a good question to ask, because think about this. And and this should impact our evangelism. What did when Moses went up to the mountain and delayed for 40 days? What did Aaron do when the people started getting restless? He built a golden calf. Right? And then he even kinda lied about it and said, Well, I just threw the gold in and this calf came out. Did God whack him? Why didn't God whack him for building a golden calf? Because God is merciful, gracious, long suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. <clears throat> no doubt God looked down on Aaron and was like, Yeah, that was not good. Right? But he looks down and he sees He sees a seed of faith in Aaron's heart. And when Moses said, whoever's on the Lord's side, get over here. Right. Aaron came. And then there was just all kinds of judgment that breaks out. But Aaron was rescued. You get to Nadab and Abihu a little bit later. Right after the fire comes down to lick up the offering after all of this development in Leviticus. Nadab and Abihu decide when you put all the pieces together, we're going to take fire that God hasn't even authorized, probably fire that they do over that Molech worship that's more cool. And, you know, it's kind of more in vogue today. And, by the way, they were a little bit drunk. They were kind of like some of our reform friends that like the, the drink a little bit too much. And so <clears throat> they're drunk. They come in with strange fire And because we know God's character, he's very merciful. He'll let things go for a while. The implication is these guys have been stiff harming the Lord for a while. They come in and God just breaks out and boom, whacks them. And then Moses says to Aaron and his other sons, don't mourn. Don't leave the tent. This is God's justice breaking out. He will by no means clear the guilty. So part. what do we learn when we look at the God of the gospel in just these two respective passages? What we find <clears throat> is that eternal life is completely available to those that know God and Jesus Christ by experience. And as God loves the Son, he wants to pour out his love on his children. And that God is gracious and merciful and long-suffering, and we see that displayed all over the Bible. Read the book of Judges. You want to read a good Old Testament example of how long suffering God is? See how often God keeps answering the cries of these stiff necked people that keep going in their cycles of sin. And yet his mercy and grace does have an end to, to it. Right. If people stiff arm their hearts against Jesus Christ, the once for all sufficient death on the cross. There is no answer if you reject Christ. It's been appointed for man to die once. After this, the what? Judgment. You come into judgment with no Passover lamb, with no Jesus Christ, with no lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Guess what? You get Nadab and Abihu treatment. But we don't have to get the Nadab and Abihu treatment. We can get the Aaron treatment if we'll simply call out For mercy. And when when Moses says who's on the Lord's side. We say I'm with you. I'm repenting of my sin. I'm moving away from the golden calf. I'm coming over to the true God. That's the God of the gospel. Let's look at the. uh, The prayer. That we uh, had you guys read. This last week and pray over just consider. We're we're not going to talk about this too long. But just think about this. That Jesus, he goes to all the cities and villages. He's teaching. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So there's the gospel of the king who has uh, authority and reign. He's healing diseases. And when he sees the multitudes, he's moved with what? Compassion. That's consistent with the nature of God. Because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is truly plentiful but the laborers are few. Therefore, a couple things. Uh, pray. So you're going to cry out to whom? The Lord, the sovereign, the king of the harvest to send out laborers into whose harvest? His harvest. So Jesus has compassion. He turns to his disciples and says, I want you to pray something. I want you to pray to the sovereign king of this harvest, that he'll send laborers out to his harvest. It's his. And and so part of what we get from this prayer, this is a great prayer for us to pray, is the, the work of the gospel, the work of evangelism is primarily his. It's his harvest. And we can look out and we can say, Lord, I wish there were more laborers. And that's partially, I think, uh, a movement of the spirit to put into the hearts of his children. And we can pray, Lord, raise up more laborers. But we pray to the Lord of the harvest to send workers out into his harvest. And guess what? The very next chapter, what happens is those that were praying were sent. And so we pray and then we're willing to be sent and go and use the gifts that God's given us. If we understand Jesus's compassion for the lost, Jesus's compassion for us, what we don't do is we try to guilt people into doing the work of evangelism. You lazy cornerstone Christians. You guys are all going to be watching two football games this afternoon when you should be out doing the work of the ministry. Turn off your football games and get out there and start preaching the gospel. To people who are going to hell. Why don't you? That may work this afternoon. But that's not going to be gasoline that's going to sustain you for the long haul. What will sustain you for the long haul is to realize that the same Jesus who has compassion upon the masses has compassion on you. And he's wooing you with that same compassion to call upon him. It's his harvest. He's the Lord. And he will move upon you to give you the motivation that will fuel you for the long haul. To where you won't just want to get up and share the gospel out of guilt for a week or two, and then you lose energy. But you'll find the type of energy that Spurgeon speaks of that comes from sitting at the feet of Christ like Mary. When we sit at the feet of Christ like Mary and we're drinking in his words for us, that gives you an energy where you'll be like, where did this come from? Why am I talking to people the way I'm talking to them? Why am I have, suddenly having a desire To share Christ with people that just goes beyond what I naturally do. That comes from sitting at the feet of Jesus and understanding that your God is gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. And he's forgiven your sins, iniquities, and transgressions. That's the fuel that will make us more passionate evangelists. And so we need to cry out for that, right? Let's talk about a couple of the resources that we've put into your hands this week. Um, we're only going to talk about one section. Um, the first section in Life's Most Important Questions. Ruth, what was the question again? Who is God? So that's where we always want to start with ourselves and when we're trying to talk to other people about Christ, about the Lord, is who is God? Who is God? God is the, anybody know what the answer is according to that track? He is the creator, sustainer, king and sustainer of the universe or of all things, right? So he's king, he's in control. And then it goes into various attributes. One of the attributes is his love. One of the attributes is the fact that he's a trinity, that he's sovereign, so on and so forth. I find that when I'm evangelizing, one of my goals is, is to constantly try to attack the stereotype that unbelievers have of Christ and Christians. And so one of the things that we did this last week, I'm only able to give a short little sliver, but I we gave a little sliver of a sermon from Jonathan Edwards. I think I have a couple. I may have laid out a couple copies of this in the back. There's a sermon by Jonathan Edwards called The Excellencies of Christ, were part of it, he says this, and I read this to all the UCR students that came by. I said, you need not hesitate one moment, but may run to Christ and cast yourself upon him. You will certainly be graciously and meekly received by him. Though he be a lion, he will only be a lion to your enemies, but he will be a lamb to you. And I'll spend a little bit of time just talking about how that Jonathan Edwards, who was By the way, one of the first presidents of Princeton University, a contemporary of Benjamin Franklin, preached this message in the 1700s about the excellency of Christ based on Revelation 5. That puts Christ on display as both a lion and a lamb. He is sovereign and yet he is humble. And God has sent Jesus Christ to be a lion against your enemies. What are your enemies? It's the devil and sin in your own flesh. And if you would simply call upon Jesus, he will be a lion to those enemies, but he'll be a lamb of forgiveness to you. I like to preach messages like that because a lot of people, they automatically think that Christians, um, one, about the only sermon, if anybody knows Jonathan Edwards, they remember sinners in the hands of an angry God, and they've never even read it. They just think that God's just angry all the time. But they don't realize that in the end that very sermon, and that most of Edward's preaching, he's preaching about the love and the grace of the Lord primarily as the answer to God's justice and His wrath, His rightful wrath. And so we want to talk about who is God. He's the king, He's the creator, He's the sustainer of all things, and he's compassionate, loving and merciful. In the Two Ways to Live pamphlet, by the way, um, I I sent you guys some links. There's some really uh, great resources here. Sometimes I don't have a physical track on me, but I can pull this up on my phone. And it's very mobile friendly, the way that this track moves through with with my little kind of scroll of my thumb. And I can move from one point to the the next very easily. Um, And so you can always have a gospel track on your phone if you just simply kind of go to that site and then create it on your home screen. I can show you how to do that. If you don't know how to do it, you just kind of create a little icon on your home screen and you can flip through it. But the very first point in this track, which is a great track. God is the loving ruler of the world. He made the world. He made us rulers of the world under him. And then it quotes revelation four. And it's just a great place to start. He's the loving ruler of the world. Look at all these wonderful things that he has done and given us. Do you know that God gave every one of you guys bodies that has a built in thirst recognition system. You don't have to train anybody to recognize thirst. You just know you're thirsty and God put you on a planet that has tons of H2O. Good thing that you weren't born on Mars. So you can go and you can find water just about anywhere, although I can't find my water now, but I come over and here it is. There's just water everywhere and you put it up to your lips and your body knows what to do with it. I put water goes into my stomach. I don't have to think about it. My stomach sends the H2O all throughout my body. That's just God's goodness and grace in our lives that we, we can recognize thirst. We can find water and that God by his grace puts the water where our bodies needs, needs it to go in the same sense. God has sent Jesus Christ to this earth to quench the thirst of mankind so that they would simply drink and believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, was raised from the dead. You can be saved. And it doesn't take a whole lot of intellect. It's simply believing in Christ. They died, was raised from the dead. And God, the Holy Spirit, will send that grace where it needs to go. God is good. He is gracious gracious. And, and to be able to, to put God's goodness and graciousness on display for kids and young people or people around the world that just don't even really think about spiritual things very often. Anyway, consider those tracks. Those are some great resources. You guys can do what you want. I don't tend to get locked into one method. I love gospel tracks, but I tend to use one for a while until I get bored of it. And then I go to another one. Um, so I, I use all kinds of different gospel tracks. Um, and so I've always got something in my back pocket that I'm passing out. Um, I've, I've gotten a little stingy with my Alvin Davis cards because there's not too many of them left. I only have about 50 left. And so I, I tend to be a little more stingy with those. Um, but it's just a great opportunity. Let's talk about one final thing. And as this um, last week. We just had the, the blessed opportunity to have Long Fan, who's sitting right here, uh, just call upon Christ as his Savior. And so I put his testimony in your packet at length. He wrote up his testimony just kind of on his own. And you guys will have you have three pages that I'd encourage you to read on your own. I just want to give a couple highlights, and Long can correct me if I mess anything up. Uh, but basically, when Long was uh, first invited to or right before he was invited to come to church by Jennifer, he thought of Jesus as just like a genie, you know, a genie in a bottle. You you know, you can ask him for things. Maybe he'll answer you. Maybe he won't. If he does answer you, he's hearing you. If he doesn't answer you, maybe he doesn't like you. Um, but as Long came to Cornerstone, he began to get a sense that these people love Jesus And he is very dear to them. He said, I heard Jesus described in such an endearing and personal way for the first time in my life. Jesus was not a genie to people here. He was their savior. And he began to hear Pastor Milton preach in John 6. In fact, uh, long knows the day, October 1st, 2017. He began to feel a stirring in his heart as the gospel was preached. And he began over time to sense Jesus's love and grace and mercy. And slowly, one by one, different roadblocks began to disappear. But he still had one roadblock. And that was as he felt that he he thought that he really needed to have a deep sense of desperation, a deeper sense of his own sin to feel how bad he was. And because he wasn't feeling how bad he was, he felt like he couldn't really call upon Christ. And that went on for quite a while and he began to get discouraged. But then at work one day, one of his Christian workmates said, so what are you waiting for? And that began to to ruminate in Long's mind. And so he began to ask himself two questions. One, do I believe in Jesus Christ? And you answered, I do. Do I believe in the message Jesus came to give? And he says, I knew the answer to my first question was yes. Yes. Into the second question, if I were to say no, then I would be calling Jesus a liar. And I knew in my heart that Jesus was not a liar. And so over time, Long just got to the place where he's like, I just need to stop trusting in my feelings and just call upon Christ. It's not about what I feel. It's about what Jesus felt on the cross for me. And so just this last Thursday, I'm not going to cry, that after we... Maybe I will. After we had time, by the way, um, Long's been coming out to evangelism every other week. So he, he hadn't quite embraced Christ yet, his own savior, but he was still coming out, passing out tracts at UCR. And just this last Thursday, he said, one of the reasons why I was coming out is I wanted to hear the gospel preached. I just wanted to hear Jesus being preached and what was being said. And so in um, in the middle of our, our time together, he just says, I want to call upon Christ and he prayed. And so this is a new brother in the Lord. I encourage you guys to come up and say hi to him afterwards. Just so thankful. Yeah. Praise the <laughs> Lord. And so long s- we're looking at baptism, he's going to talk to his folks in a couple of weeks, pray for him as he talks to his um, Roman Catholic parents about getting baptized. And then we're going to set that up. Um, But he says, finally, I I still have some worries and unbelief in my heart, but I trust that Jesus will in due time open my heart and eyes to see the things with clarity. I just want to point out that part of what the Lord used, this is an example right before us of how the Lord used Jennifer to invite him to Cornerstone and then heard the preaching of the gospel from this pulpit for many years or two years and seeing you guys worship the Lord that had an impact on long and then him coming rubbing shoulders with our evangelism team that had an impact and the Lord used this team and he's the ultimate evangelist, right? It's the spirit that draws people opens up their eyes to see the love and mercy of Christ that can happen through you as well as the Lord sends us out into the harvest this next week you have homework on your packet. It's right on the back. I want to encourage you guys um, this week your prayer homework is to pray through Romans ten one to four. I want you to pray through those verses. And then read Romans ten four to twenty one. And then you're gonna read out of uh, the wicked gate, around the wicked gate. There's copies back there, you can buy one for yourself. This is free online if you just want to read it online. We want you guys to read the first four sections. It's not very long reading. It's really, really good stuff. I'll be up here if you have questions. uh, But let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you so much, Lord, for loving us from before the foundation of the world. We thank you, Father, that as you have loved the Son, so the Son loves us. Help us to abide in that love. Help us to grow in our taste, not just knowledge, but our taste. That you are a God who is merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. Uh, Merciful to thousands of generations. Forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sins. By no means clearing the guilty. Visiting sin upon children to the third and fourth generation. To those that hate you. But forgiving those who call upon you. We pray, Father, that you would continue to help us grow in our own experience of the God of the good news, and that that would well up on our hearts, that we would be compelled and constrained to go out and share. We pray, Father, that you help us get more and more equipped. Thank you for so many more experienced evangelists that we do have in our church now, even in this class. Help us learn from them. And uh, we pray for long, and we pray, God, that you just bless him as he talks to his parents, as he considers baptism and communion. And, Lord, that you would just cause him to grow in his love and taste of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen.